Thanks, Josh. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you have a Bible with you, would you please open it now to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. You'll notice as you turn there that this is the end of the letter to the Philippians, the last chapter. And Paul often ends his letters with an assortment of greetings, blessings, miscellaneous instructions, and various encouragements. So today we're going to look at some of Paul's final encouragements to the Philippian church. Well, these are encouragements that we desperately need to hear today. As we said, it's Canada Day. We've prayed for our country. We've acknowledged the gifts, the privileges that we have in this country. But we also acknowledge the flaws of our country. We acknowledge the fact that we live in a broken and fallen world. That when we look outside, we see darkness. We see lost people. We see the midst of a mental health crisis in our country. We see that rates of depression and anxiety are skyrocketing. We see that people are lost, confused, and hurting. And we know that it's not just the world out there. It's in here too. Many of us feel the brokenness of the world we live in. We feel it quite deeply. We are not immune to the fears, troubles, and anxieties of life. And so we need to hear what the Apostle Paul has to say to us here in the end of the letter to the Philippian church. We need to hear his encouragements and his exhortations. Now, the word there, exhortation, isn't one that we often use, but it's a good word. It essentially means an urgent appeal. It means to urge strongly. So what we're going to see today is a snapshot of how Paul thinks Christians should operate, how we should carry ourselves. It is, it is his emphatic appeal to the Philippian church to understand how Jesus changes absolutely everything. And how we should allow that knowledge to inform our perspectives and attitudes. So I want you to keep that in mind as we turn our attention to the word of God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I mentioned, these four verses offer a brief summary of the Christian attitude and perspective on life. Paul is telling us that this is how we should think, how we should carry ourselves accordingly. However, before we begin to unpack these things, I want to point out the fact that this is not some self-help, pull up yourself by your bootstraps, be your best self kind of message. It's important that we realize that Paul wrote this letter to the church, to Christians, to those who are in Christ. If you look at Philippians 1 verse 1, Paul addresses his letter by this, saying this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Paul is writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus. So once again, this is not a message about how you can live your best life now. Paul is not telling us how to practice mindfulness, how to focus on the positives. He's not telling us how to better ourselves. He is telling us how Jesus Christ changes everything. So every instruction that we will see, every encouragement, every exhortation, is rooted in and founded upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
Paul is demonstrating how the gospel enables us to think differently. He is opening our eyes to see the power of the gospel in our lives, the implication that the gospel has for every aspect of life. You see, sometimes we narrow the gospel down to a historical event. Yes, Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead and was ascended into heaven. These things happened. They are the heart of the gospel. But the gospel is more than that. We cannot limit it to just the facts of what happened. It is also the life-transforming power that these events have. It is the way our hearts are changed and transformed by God. It is the fact that we are given the ability by God's grace to see and to enjoy God. I love this quote from John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel. He says this, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Friends, the gospel is so much more than the good news of our justification and redemption through Christ. It is a life-changing power to enjoy Christ, to see him, and day by day be transformed into his image. So in our text today, we're going to see three key characteristics, three key attributes of a heart that is transformed by Christ. And the first thing we see is that a heart that has been transformed by Christ is joyful. This is clearly seen in verse 4, where Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Again, this is not simply an encouragement. It is an encouragement, but it's also a command. Paul is instructing the saints to rejoice at all times. But I want you to notice what he grounds the rejoicing in. Paul doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. Rejoice in your wealth, in your success. Rejoice in your family. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And just to emphasize this command, Paul repeats it. Christians are clearly and emphatically commanded to rejoice in the Lord always. Joy and rejoicing are the default position of the Christian heart. Now I want to make sure you heard that correctly and carefully. Joy and rejoicing are the default position of the Christian heart. Paul is commanding us to rejoice here, but he's not saying that we can never experience anything other than joy. He's not saying that we are sinning when we feel negative emotions, when we feel sad or angry or frustrated or disappointed. There's a time for fears and sadness. Jesus himself wept at the death of Lazarus. Even though he knew full full well he would raise him from the dead, he still experienced the sadness of death. The Bible teaches that there is a time for everything. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 reminds us that there is a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. So it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to weep and to mourn. But what is not okay is for that to be your default attitude. G. Walter Hansen helpfully reminds us, he writes this, Written from prison to Christians who are suffering for their commitment to Christ, This command 
calls for the development of a cheerful attitude in every circumstance to be the dominant theme in the Christian life. A cheerful attitude in every circumstance to be the dominant theme in the Christian life. Not the only theme, mind you, but the dominant theme. The one that is most present, most experienced, the one that which is our default theme, the one by which we are known. Hansen goes on to add that Paul's double emphasis on joy comes from his own experience of knowing the resurrection power of Christ and participation in his sufferings in his Roman prison. You see, the Apostle Paul knew what it was to suffer. He was familiar with hardship. He was well acquainted with grief and loss. Yet here he is saying that our default position should be that of joy and cheerfulness. Joy and cheerfulness in the Lord. That's the game changer right there. It's the reason that this is at all possible. It's the reason the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle James tells us to count it all joy when we meet various trials of any kind. It is why the Apostle Paul can say with such confidence that he considers all of his hardship, all of his suffering and persecution, not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to him. Because of the Lord, because of who God is, because of his goodness, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his mercy, his power, Paul declares in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, and if you are in Christ, then he most certainly is for you. Who can be against you? What on earth can stand against? Friends, the sovereign, all-powerful, all-loving, all-good God of the universe is on your side. What reason do you have to not rejoice? What on earth can possibly steal your joy? If I'm being honest here, I think by and large as a church in North America, we've dropped the ball in this area. I think if we're being honest with ourselves, if we're doing honest reflection, we're probably not known as people of joy. So I would encourage you this week, this afternoon, as soon as you possibly can, to take some time and reflect on that. To ask people who know you best if they would consider you to be a joyful person. Are you characterized by joy in the Lord? Because we ought to be known as people of joy. People who have a resolute gladness and cheerfulness about them. And I know we can all grow in this. I know I can grow in my capacity for joy. We should grow in our ability to see Christ for who he is. To see the goodness and glory of God revealed to us through Jesus and to savor it. To enjoy Christ. To rest in him. To enjoy the freedom and the power that is ours in Christ. Freedom to look past petty grievances, frustrations, inconveniences. Freedom to feel the resounding joy that comes from knowing that God is good. And that he is working all things for the good of those who love him. Look to Christ. Look and look again and know the joy that is yours in Christ. Christ has redeemed you from your sins. He has freed you from the curse of death. He has purchased you with his blood. He has given you every reason to rejoice. 
so rejoice. A heart that has been transformed by Christ is a heart that is joyful and glad. That's the first thing we see in the text this morning. The second thing we see is that a heart that is transformed by Christ is gentle. Look in your Bibles with me to verse 5. There we read, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now your Bibles may or may not have a footnote there. Mine does. It likely says something along the lines of, or gentleness. Or this can be translated as gentleness. You see, the Greek word used there, epeikis, does not have a direct English translation. So there's a variety of words that can be used. There's some ambiguity towards what it means. Reasonableness captures a part of what that word means. Gentleness captures other aspects. I, Howard Marshall, defines the word as fair-mindedness, the attitude of a man who is charitable towards men's faults and merciful in his judgment of their failings because he takes their whole situation into his reckoning. Ralph Martin offers this helpful summary. He says that perhaps graciousness is the best English equivalent. And in the context here, it is to be the spirit of willingness to yield under trial, which will show itself in a refusal to retaliate when attacked. Personally, I think the best word here, the best idea is captured by the word gentleness. That Christians ought to be gentle people. They ought not to retaliate when attacked, as Martin helpfully pointed out. And as Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, Christians turn the other cheek. We are not quarrelsome people. We do not seek retaliation and revenge. This statement here in Philippians is a summary of what the Apostle Paul teaches all throughout his letters. Consider here what he says to the church in Rome, in Romans 12. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All of that is what Paul is capturing here in his instructions to the Philippians. That Christians ought to be reasonable. That we are not overcome by evil. We do not respond to evil with evil, but with good. But notice that once again, Paul gives a foundation for this instruction. He reminds the Philippian church that the Lord is at hand. Now that phrase, the Lord is at hand, may mean a couple of things. It may mean that the day of the Lord is near, that God's perfect justice will be enacted. Or it may refer to the sense that the Lord is at hand through the nearness of Jesus to us, through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now personally, I think that Paul is cleverly referring to both of these things. He wants us to understand that the day of the Lord is coming, and that when it comes, the wicked will be punished. The people of God will be rewarded and united with God in heaven. Therefore, we can withstand a little unfair treatment now. We don't need to retaliate. We don't need to get ours. Because we know that the Lord will repay. And that his justice is far, far superior to our own. 
And on top of that, Paul is reminding us that God is with us. That in the face of adversity, in the face of mistreatment and hardship and persecution, God is right there alongside us. Jesus knows what it is to be treated unfairly. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it is to be persecuted, to be abandoned and abused. He understands our pain. And he is able to provide the comfort we need. So the Lord is at hand. Remember the the story, friends, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they are unfairly thrown into the fiery furnace for, for their dedication to God. But they were joined by a fourth person in the flames who spared them any real harm. So the same way God is with us in our trials. If we are in Christ, then we can be confident that God will spare us from anything that can truly harm us. Now, this does not mean that God will spare us from pain, suffering, or even from death. But it means that he will preserve our souls. He will shepherd us into salvation through all the various fires of life. Consider what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 10, 28. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We have no reason to fear what happens to our earthly bodies. We ought to fear what happens to our souls for eternity. And if we are in Christ, then our souls are secured. That we have eternal, unchanging, unassailable security in Christ. And because of that, Because of this eternal security that we have in Christ, we ought to be gentle. We ought to be gracious. We ought to be forbearing. We ought to be reasonable. That change should be taking place in your heart. If you truly have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. The realities of the gospel are being made more and more clear to us. And they ought to transform how we view and interact with the world. And this heart transformation specifically is something we're going to need in the coming years. More and more, this culture seems to be drifting away from any sort of foundation whatsoever. People are becoming disillusioned with their self-worship. And as they become unanchored from any solid foundation, any solid footing, our gentleness, our graciousness in the face of adversity, our reasonableness will shine like a beacon to them, guiding them to Christ. It is not time to fight. It is not time to get angry and shout about our rights. It is not time to be bitter towards the world. It is time to be gentle and gracious, to provide calm reassurance of gospel truth to a broken and hurting world. It is time for our hearts to be transformed as we behold Christ and the life-changing power of the gospel. Now, thirdly and finally, we see that a heart that is transformed by Christ is confident. In verses 6 and 7, we are told, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Once again here, we see a hyperbolic command. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything anything. And clearly he does not mean that we should never ever feel anxiety. There are times when it's good and proper to be anxious. It's probably good to be anxious when you're standing on the edge of a very large cliff, for example. 
That's probably your body trying to tell you to get back to safety. And I personally, I have never been more anxious than when my daughter Eleanor was, burned, was born. And the brief pause from when she was born and she took her first cry was the longest and scariest moments of my life. I have never been more anxious. And I don't think that anxiety is sinful. I think it's a normal parental concern for the safety of your child. I think there are times in life when it is good and proper to feel anxiety. That being said, what Paul is commanding us here is against letting anxiety dictate our lives. We can be people who feel anxious at times, but we are not to be anxious people. You see the distinction there? We are not to be controlled or identified by our anxiety. Now, I don't want to minimize the struggles of those with anxiety. I know that mental health struggles are real and difficult. I understand the pressure. I know the struggle. I think as a whole, however, our society has begun to normalize anxiety. In our efforts to support and encourage those with mental health struggles, our pendulum has swung too far to the other side. We have made it seem that anxiety is now just simply a part of life, a part of who we are, a part of our identity. It is not something that can be treated or overcome. It's just who we are and something we have to live with. It has become part of people's identities, and the world is telling us that that is okay. And that is a problem. That's not what the Bible says here. Paul says that our identity is not in our anxiety, but it is in Christ. We are not to be defined by nor controlled by our anxieties. Rather, we are instructed here to bring them to the Lord in prayer. The Bible consistently reminds us that we have a good Father in heaven who A, wants to hear our prayers and concerns, and B, is faithful to answer them according to his perfect and good will. And so because of these things, we can bring our prayers to God with confidence. A heart that understands these things is confident. Hebrew 4, Hebrew 4.16 reminds us, saying, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My friends, the sovereign God of the universe, the three times holy God of all creation, who dwells in unapproachable light, is in fact approachable through Jesus Christ. That Jesus has given us direct access to the all-powerful God of the universe, to our heavenly Father, who has counted every single hair on your head. What is there to stop you from drawing near to him? What is there to stop you from receiving the mercy and grace in time of need? What is there to stop you from receiving and experiencing the peace that transcends understanding? There is nothing, nothing in all creation can stop you from receiving what has been brought, bought for you through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is Paul's promise here. The peace that transcends understanding. Peace that, make, peace that makes no earthly sense. Peace in the face of adversity and trial and hardship is promised to you. It is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ has made a way for us to lay our anxieties and fears down at the cross. This doesn't mean we will never feel them ever again, but it does mean they will no longer control us. I genuinely believe that is promised to us by God. I think the problem is 
that so often we bring our burdens and fears and anxieties to God, yet we keep some back. We are willing to lay down some of our sins, some of our fears at the cross, but not others. We are often afraid of what will happen if we let it all go, if we give God everything. We have convinced ourselves for one reason or another that we can't fully trust God. We can trust him with a lot, but not with everything. We want to hold back to just a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of fear, a little bit of worry, a little bit of sin, because we still want that independence and autonomy and control. When I look back at my life, every major period of growth and sanctification came when I realized there was something I was holding back from God and I let it go. These things that we hold on to are major obstacles to us fully realizing what has been given to us in Christ. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has purchased our eternal, unassailable peace that surpasses all understanding. That is yours to receive today through, par- through prayer and through faith in Jesus. Church history is full of remarkable witness of Christians through the peace they possessed in the midst of extremely difficult situations. Countless martyrs went to their deaths with smiles on their face, with confidence knowing that they were going to be reunited with God. The Apostle Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. There is peace available in the face of any and all circumstances. Since the beginning of the church, Christians have been recognizable in society because of the peace that they possess, because of the steadfast confidence they have in Jesus. You see, a heart that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ is a heart that is at peace. It is not tossed to and fro by the winds and waves of worry. It is a heart that is confident because it knows that it can bring its burdens before the Lord and does so. It is a heart that knows that nothing in heaven or on earth can stop God's good purposes. It is a heart that rests in the love of a heavenly Father who gives good gifts to his children. And so this morning we see that a heart that has truly encountered Christ, a heart that has repented of its sin, has turned and put its faith in Jesus, is forever changed. We see that if we are truly in Christ, then our attitude, our demeanor, our perspectives ought to reflect that. We should be people who are known for being joyful, gentle, and confident in Christ. Of course, this doesn't mean that we don't have bad days. We all have bad days. It simply means that our default attitude reflects who we are in Christ. And if you are anything like me this morning, you're seeing the many ways you need to grow in these areas. And I will encourage you, look to Christ. None of these changes are possible on your own. We cannot lift ourselves up. We cannot improve ourselves. There is no simple change to make to increase your joy, your gentleness, and your confidence. The only thing you can do is draw near to God. Behold Christ, as the Apostle Paul says, and we with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image 
from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. This comes from the Lord. Behold him. That is the encouragement from you today. Realize what you have in Christ. What the gospel has accomplished for you. Know it, understand it, let it change you. And not only is it an encouragement, but it is an invitation. An invitation to come behold Christ. To seek him in his word, on your own and together as a church. Seek to grow in your knowledge of him and your knowledge of his love for you. Grow in your ability to see him, be transformed by him, and enjoy him. This is the invitation from Holy Scripture. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So come to Jesus. Find rest in him. Find joy and peace. Know that these things are freely yours and behold him. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you today. We're just so unbelievably thankful for who you are. For that you are the good God of the universe. That you have created all things. You have orchestrated all of human history for the good of those who love you but that you have sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, that we might have a relationship with you, but that we might have eternity in heaven with you. And more than that, Lord, we might know what it is to be with you here on earth, but that we can have joy and peace and gentleness when it makes no sense whatsoever, but because we know you are bigger and better than whatever this earth has to offer, but that we can rest in Christ, Lord, in the free gift of grace that is ours. Lord, so I pray you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, meet each and every one of us here today. Lord, that we might grow in our understanding of Christ. That we might savor him and treasure him above all. Lord, and through that we might be filled with joy. Filled with gentleness and confidence and peace. Lord, for your glory. Amen.